Good morning. It's good to see you. Always nice to, nice to get back with one another. Uh, <clears throat> do you remember the sins of your past? Yeah. <laughs> do you uh, remember the really bad ones? Is it hard to get rid of them out of your head? They persist, don't they? They keep coming back to us. They keep making us wonder. Am I going to make it, really? Especially after that. Especially after some of the things that I did. Maybe there were people in your past that observed your bad example and fell away. Maybe there were people who continued in sin long after you repented, but it was your influence that got them into it. Maybe it was something so absolutely ungodly, so out of character for a Christian that you you look at yourself in the mirror and you can't even believe that it was you who did it. I would imagine most all of us have experienced those kinds of things. What is it more recently? Is there something even in the past few weeks that was not Christ-like? That was not what it should have been? And you know you shouldn't have done it. Maybe it was just something you neglected. Summed up, what sins have you committed that make you wonder whether or not God is going to save you? Remember having a conversation with my mother who knew the Bible, I suppose, as well as most any woman would know, and taught more people than I can count, and helped more people than I can count. Questioned her salvation before her last breath. And I couldn't even imagine that Chet was where she was. <clears throat> but she was remembering she was remembering some very, very ugly times in her past. And it was difficult. We have a serious problem when it comes to sinning. And another part of that sinning that we often don't think about is falling short of the glory of God. Paul said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. I get the past of it. But all also, and he used the present tense, fall short of the glory of God. We have a, we have a problem of continually dealing with this falling short and dealing with occasionally just outright violating what the Lord has asked us to do or asked us not to do. 
And therefore, when me or someone else or you read in your Bible about the confidence we are supposed to have in Christ, it absolutely just feels a little foolish to express our confidence when we cannot escape our failure. And that is, that's, that's tough. And I think for those of us especially who grew up in a religious family, grew up going to a church, grew up knowing and being a part of the gospel message, that is just one of those things that I would say is probably each of our biggest problems. Is that day-to-day life when we are aware of our sin, aware of our past, aware of what we had done, and trying to figure out how am I going to live another moment under these conditions. So that's what the lesson's about this morning. How are we going to deal with this? I, I would suggest to you that Leviticus is probably the most important text in comprehending, first and foremost, our sin, and then comprehending how forgiveness is part of that. But Leviticus is not exactly our favorite text. And maybe that's some of the reasons that we have dealt so difficultly with this particular subject. Understanding sin and then understanding how forgiveness takes place is what Leviticus introduces for us. So let's talk a little bit about that so we can set the, set the plate here for a second of what this really is about. Leviticus deals with three primary things when it comes to sin. Leviticus, for one thing, tells us how serious sin is. I think that is the first part of, of, of the whole approach to the subject. Many people, and as you know, uh, we, we hope it's not among us, but I know it is among us because I'm among us, <laughs> and sometimes I'm that way. How serious is sin? And Leviticus deals with that. The ultimate seriousness of sin is not appreciated many, many times. And if there, were nothing, if there was nothing else to say, all we would have to say is, to deal with just one of our sins took Jesus to the cross. And that explains better than anything how serious our sin is every single time. It also explains to us how sin affects our relationship with God. That's what Leviticus really is telling us. You have a problem, God is saying. You have a problem about sin and how it affects me and what it does to our relationship. Adam and Eve sinned once and they were out of the garden. Again, seriousness is there, but look what it did to God and what God wanted to be done. God wanted to dwell in our midst, and He couldn't. 
We deal with a God who is absolutely perfect, who is absolutely holy, and it is impossible to imagine how we can step into His presence. And God is the only one that can make that happen. And so Leviticus is explaining to us, you're unclean. 127 times God said, you're unclean. But I'm here to make it so I can dwell in your midst. And, of course, Leviticus deals with when sin can be forgiven. And that's the best. When can sin be forgiven? When can I look at the worst thing I ever did in my life and have confidence of, its for, of that sin's forgiveness? And that's what Leviticus explains to us and helps us. Anything we read about forgiveness in the New Testament is a fulfillment and a greater escalation of how that all happened from Leviticus' point of view. And so it's incredibly important that we see that. When you get to Leviticus, I know I'm telling you something that you're already aware of, but Leviticus comes after Exodus. And that's really important. Because in the book of Exodus, God talked about how He delivered Israel out of bondage. And we remember the Passover lamb. In fact, we remembered the true Passover lamb just a few minutes ago. We remembered the greatness of the Passover lamb that we have, that John proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we remembered and rejoiced in the Passover, our Passover lamb. But here is what's interesting about the whole scene of Israel coming out of Egypt. They get a Passover lamb. They get the, 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 the death angel passing over their houses. They escape the consequences of their own sin. And then they're taken across the Red Sea in a baptismal form and come out and be the people of God. And yet what is amazing is the problem of sin and death persisted. When I discuss the gospel with people who are not Christians, the easy part is for me to explain to them how they're going to be forgiven of their past sins. But invariably, the question comes up, how am I going to live after that? How am I going to endure after that I have had the past sins forgiven? How am I going to live day by day knowing that sin is going to persist in my life? And that is our, that is our problem. That is the thing that we constantly have to deal with. God said in, in chapter 25 of Exodus in verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is... This is what this is about. The last thing you and I want is God not dwelling in our midst. Whether it's with you individually or us as a body of, of, of people who follow Him, God must dwell in our midst if we are going to survive. The worst day of Israel's life after they came out of the wilderness was at Mount Sinai following when they offered, when they built a golden calf and fell down and worshipped it. And when Moses came down from the mountain, he took the two tablets of stone and he shattered them into pieces, indicating God's covenant is off. I'm done with you. He even told Moses, go tell the people, I'm not going with them. I'll send an angel. They'll get there because I made a promise, but I'm not going with you. And to Israel's credit, they said, oh no, 
Oh, no. And to Moses' credit, he came to God and he said, if you're not going, we're not going. Oh, how we need that attitude. If you're not going, I'm not going. I have to have you with me. How will God make that happen for us? How are we going uh, to deal with that? Ask yourself this question, please. God said in Leviticus, you must be holy. I am holy, therefore you must be holy. Peter uh, repeated it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16. You must be holy, for I am holy. That's the idea. To be in His presence, we must be holy. And we're not talking about a little bit of holiness. We're not talking about holiness now and then. We're not talking about holiness on Sunday. We're not talking about holiness a little bit. We're talking about absolute, complete sinlessness in order to be in His presence. That is the challenge. And God knows it is. And God prepared us for that. And God is trying to help us to see. I'm your only source. I'm your only help here. And Leviticus deals with that. Now please ask this question of yourself. Were you more confident minutes following your baptism into Christ than you are today? Most of us came up out of that water and like, (laughs) as I think I mentioned to you one time, I baptized a guy once and he said, just drown me right now so I don't have to deal with the rest of it. (laughs) Uh, That ought not be so. And the Lord told us that. How do I get that in my head? That ought not be so. We ought to have exactly the same confidence in our salvation this very moment than we, as, as we did however many years ago it was when you came to Him. That's what He's told us. We don't have anywhere near the kind of time necessary to deal with all the passages on this this morning, and we're not. But I want to just lay the groundwork here for what it's going to take for us to follow and understand the great freedom that God has given to us. Living in God's presence, as we said, in the wilderness was a lot different than Israel realizing God had saved them out of of the land of Egypt. Now came the greater redemption that must take place, the greater challenge than just escaping Egypt, the living day by day in the presence of the Lord. So I'm going to suggest Leviticus answers two problems that we want to address. First, it answers the problem of maintaining our relationship with God. There is no such thing, and I can't for the life of me think of the person I was just talking to this past week, but talking to a person who said they talked about how their life had been up and down. In, in with God, out with God. Maybe somebody on the Wednesday night talks at it. I don't remember. It's okay. Uh, ask me what happened 90 years ago. I can remember that. Uh, but here you have that typical thing. Well, I sinned. Okay. Start over again. Okay, I'm doing pretty good today. Uh, I sinned. Start over again. 
And there's that kind of thing that sometimes we grew up with. We need to learn to maintain our relationship because of sin. But here is, to me, the most important. Becoming free from the guilt that we have inside us because of sin. Can't live with guilt. Guilt is important. Our society today is say, well, here's how you get rid of guilt. You just don't believe that junk. <laughs> That's not going to help you. God implanted this in us. We need to get rid of the guilt. So let's start here with defining sins as Leviticus defines it. And really, we can summarize it by just this beginning passage that talks about the sin offering and then later the guilt offering or trespass offering that is in the, in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 4.2 begins with it, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done, and does any of them, and then he goes on to talk about the sacrifice that must be made. God does not say anything in Leviticus about him forgiving intentional sins. He refers to unintentional sins. Now, as I read that, and I have done this for years, I have read those words and thought, I still, that's not helpful to me. That's not helpful to me. In fact, it was less helpful to me after this week I spent a number of hours looking up different ways this is translated and checking out the Hebrew. I'll give you a little bit of it. In the Hebrew, it, it, the, the, the literal, and some of the marginal readings read this net version does, and a person when he sins in straying. Hmm. Okay? A person when he sins in straying should then offer this particular sacrifice. I liked that a little better. <laughs> I thought I felt that I could have... If I had a vote in the ESV uh, uh, translating committee, I'd say, why don't you just stick that in there? It makes me feel a little better. The Septuagint says when, you, when a person sins involuntarily. Eh, that didn't help me a lot either. The Targum Onkelos, Aramaic version, when a person sins by neglect. Hmm. What happens when I sin? It's not by neglect. The ASV, when a person sins unwittingly. Okay. Uh, other versions that are less than well known, inadvertently or by accident. Okay, that happens at times. King James Version, when a person sins through ignorance. And then in Numbers 29, when a person who makes a mistake and sins unintentionally makes a mistake. Do any of those help you? <laughs> I went through all of that and I'm like, okay, what happens in the times? I don't think I'm being defiant. I'm not saying... Who cares, God? I'm not any of this, but I fall because of a weak moment. I fall because, it, and two seconds later, I want to shoot myself. I fall because it was just a tough one. 
and temptation got me. What about those? I wasn't unintentional. I did it. I knew I did it. I was aware I was doing it. I struggle with that. So my search continued. And here's what helped. Romans chapter 7. Would you turn there with me? Romans chapter 7, and beginning at verse 13. Now to set up the text, please be aware that Paul is trying to convince Jews who are under the law to turn and come to Christ. And he's giving an argument here as to why that is of of value to them. That what they need to do is they need to not live like they have been living and certainly not live the way Paul remembers living. And he he is talking about what it looks like to live as a person. Now catch this please very carefully. As a person who desires with all their heart to serve God, but constantly fails because they're not in Christ. And he says, so here's what it's like. I think you'll relate. Verse 13. Did that which is good, talking about the law, then bring death to be? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, through the com- and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The commandment, the law, was showing me how I had become sinful beyond measure. It was, it was so bad, though the commandment was good, sin took advantage of it in my life. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. I can't, I can't complain about God's law. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I have failed, and I keep failing because I lack the ability and strength to overcome this thing that is dwelling inside of me. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. You ever felt that way? I don't understand my own actions. I look in the mirror and point at myself and say, why did you do that? I don't know. It's like Bill Cosby said once to his kids. Has your brain been with you all day? No, it hasn't. It went on vacation a few moments ago. And then in verse 16, For I do what I do not want. If I do what I do, excuse me, I missed verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Mm. Let that soak in. 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So no, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now please understand, he's not saying, excuse me, I'm not doing this anymore, and so I'm free from this. No, he's saying that sin is, it, it is not me mentally wanting to do this. I hate it. But sin is now in control of my life. It is reigning on the throne of my life, and I cannot escape it. 
He started that argument, by the way, back in chapter 5 and verse 12, when he pointed out that all from the beginning, sin was reigning and death reigned, but now through Christ, grace is reigning, and he has been showing that contrast all the way through, and he's just following up with it here by saying, when I sin, I ha- I'm, I'm understanding it's not really what I wanted to do. I know, I did it, but sin is now in control. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Sin is controlling this situation. So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. You see how many times in the text he talked about his desire, how he delights in the law of God, how he wants to be loyal to God, how it is everything in him to desire that, but sin keeps hold of him, and he can't seem to escape it, and he doesn't have the power to completely overcome it. Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. See that captivity. That's the idea. There's a captivity going on here that is controlling here that I in the flesh cannot escape. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) There's that helplessness. And everybody has felt it. And everybody who desires to please God has felt it. And it is something that that has conquered us. But then he says in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now that is not saying what what happens when you're a Christian. That's saying what happens when you are under law and you're desiring to serve God, but what is happening, I'm serving the law of sin. And chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life, and he's not saying law here in the sense of the law of Christ, he's saying the principle. The principle of the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Not intending to do a whole exposition of Romans 8 here. But here's the point. Does that help you understand unintentional sin? Oh, yeah. Suddenly I'm realizing by Paul's example that that's what Leviticus was saying. 
Here you are, a person who wants to be right with God. If you didn't, you wouldn't be, as soon as you were aware of your sin, going and and offering the sacrifice. You wouldn't be making the confession. You wouldn't be doing any of these things. You're a person who desires to serve God. And God says, I know that. I know you're loyal to me. I know you're desiring. So the unintentionality of it is just what Paul's saying here in Romans 7. What I want to do is not what I'm doing. It's the controlling factor of sin reigning in my life. And God in Leviticus is saying, I'm going to give you a way to satisfy that and satisfy the fact that I'm going to be in your presence regardless that is foreshadowing something I'm going to ultimately do for you so that you can always be in my presence. And therefore, Paul is describing himself as desiring to please God, but helplessly caught in sin. But when Jesus comes, now there is no condemnation for those who are, where? Those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is the idea of now I'm dwelling in Christ. Just like in sin, I'm dwelling in sin and sin is control. Now I'm in Christ, I'm dwelling in Christ. I am, I, am, I am taking my life and putting it in Him. Does that mean that there's never a time I do something I wouldn't have done, I shouldn't have done? Or so, there is, that, is there an idea that the battle isn't still present? No, the battle is still present. And Paul says it in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. The Spirit is against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit that you may not do the things that you want. There is that battle still, but now in Christ he is satisfied that just as he was satisfying it in the book of Leviticus. Here's what you do. You offer this because I know your intentionality is me. And your sin is your unintentionality. That is not what you've been wanting to do. That's the idea. Read a couple of other passages quickly with me. In Hebrews 9 and verse 7, when he describes the day of atonement, he says, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins, or as King James, sins of ignorance, of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, what you're seeing in the standing physical tabernacle or temple was was constantly showing them that the actual way into that presence of God was not yet being revealed since there was still this shadow going on. But... He goes on to talk about how that would be solved in Christ. Look at another passage, and this one shocked me. I tell you, how many times I read Hebrews? Well, 9,628, I don't know. But, But when you get right down to it, I never saw this in verse 27 of Hebrews 7. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day by day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That blew my mind. I knew there was a daily sacrifice. I knew there was a daily burnt offering. I knew there was one in the morning and one in the evening. And here is the priest 
getting up every morning and going and offering a sacrifice, first for himself and then for the sins of the people. What sins he offering? What was the unintentional sins? doesn't mention it there, but that's what he's doing. Every single day, every single day, he offers for himself, for the sins of the people. And every day, those people get up and know that that's been offered. And they live by faith. Circle live. They live. They live. And that's what he's explaining that was happening in Leviticus. Every day, God is right there in the midst of the camp The pillar cloud is over the tabernacle. The fiery pillar by night. Every day they look up and go, He's still here. He's still in my presence. He hasn't left. Why? Because the sacrifice has been offered. Every morning and every evening, day after day after day, the priest offered the sacrifice. First thing in the morning, confidence because they kept seeing the sacrifice feeling and knowing the forgiveness and the guilt was taken away now it helps to contrast this with defiant sins and most of you are aware of these we will read and then i'll do the rest probably more by quote but we'll read numbers if you do not have this in the nice little bright page, bright, bright, blank page pages in the front of your Bible, this is a good one to put there. In Numbers 25, 29, excuse me, Numbers 15, verse 27, down through verse 30, he says, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat of a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, and for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, I was always glad when ESV updated that from some of the older versions, say presumptuous, with a high hand, defiantly, some versions uh, uh, translate. When a person does something defiantly, what happens? Whether he's native or sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people because he's despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity should be upon him. Do you understand now what a defiant sin is? That's pretty easy. We see it in our children at times. We see defiant sins when he says he's, he's reviling the Lord. He despises the word of the Lord. It's a whole different matter than loyalty to God, isn't it? It's an entirely different subject here. And by the way, he follows that with verse 32 through 36 with a man who decided on the Sabbath to go out and gather sticks. And Moses didn't know what to do with him, and he asked God, and he says, God, he says you bring him out in the middle of everybody, and everybody will stone him to death. Because he just walked out there and went, Sabbath command? Whatever. You're done. 
cannot take God's commands and have that defiant attitude. That's an entirely different matter. He says they are cut off from among the people. We've read our, our reading this morning, Hebrews 10, 26, and we've seen it many times. For if we go on sinning willfully, look at all those words, go on, go, there's a continuous nature of this. You go on sinning willfully. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he describes it in the same way he's described it here back in Numbers uh, 15. In 1 John 5, 16 and 17, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. I wonder, you know, how many of us think about that in our prayers? We see each other mess up. We see, we see each other not do some of the things we ought to do. In your prayers, do you go and ask God to forgive this one? Because you know, you know they're not defiant. You know, you hope. It's out of weakness. And he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. In Psalm 19, 12 and 13, David prays this prayer. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. God, there are faults in my life I'm not even aware of. There, were, there, were, there are and have been things in my life that took me years to understand that I had practiced and I didn't even know was wrong. He says, Declare me innocent from these hidden faults. But also, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, from high-handed sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I should be blameless and innocent of the great transgression. Here's a man who was forgiven of adultery and murder. And here's how he speaks. And then, Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9. David's psalm after Bathsheba. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without not understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Christian, this is really important. When you sin, don't be a mule. Almost, I had a nice picture. I almost put up with a real pretty mule. Don't be a mule. We are to have a different heart. And that's the difference between high-handed, defiant sins and sins that are unintentional. And then, here's the conclusion. God is concerned about taking care of our sins. He's concerned about taking care of the sins of those who love Him and who are loyal to Him. That's always been the case. God has initiated the forgiveness of sins for those who will be loyal to Him. Not to those who earned it, not to those who are good enough, because none are, but to those who want to be loyal to Him. To those same people who say to themselves, I did what I didn't want to do, and what I wanted to do I did not do. Those are the people that the Lord has always desired to take away their sins. And that's why He sent His Son. And that's why He died on the cross. And the worst thing that He could ever do in order to save us 
save those who love him and those who are loyal to him and urge a greater loyalty. That kind of forgiveness should urge that greater loyalty. So what about these unintentional sins? Now what we've got to be careful about is, I can't be thinking, oh well, <laughs> if, if he's forgiving unintentional sins, then, then, that's not, then unintentional sins are not very important. No, no. He just got through saying in 1 John 5 and 17, all wrongdoing is sin. Though it's still serious. And I need to avoid it as much as possible. That's what he's telling us when he tells us in 1 Peter to grow in these qualities. That's what he's telling us when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We're growing in the Spirit and led by the Spirit. We're going to... The Spirit's going to produce this fruit in us. The Spirit's not producing love, joy, peace, gentleness, long-suffering. He's not producing those things, then there's something wrong. We're going back to the ways of the flesh. Remember, it was the love of God. Jesus went to the cross for unintentional sins. We need to do everything we can to grow and avoid those things. And besides, unintentional sins lead to defiant sins. Unintentional sins can cause us to become callous. They're dangerous because they're sin. And so Satan's always going, just one more, just one more. Hey, try this. Hey, try this. No, we're not trying this because of how great God is and how much he's loved us. We're not going to do that. Ezekiel said, be careful, God said in Ezekiel, be careful to obey me. Am I going to be careless? Am I going to intentionally be careless? Watch out. Watch out. Why are we trying to please God? That's what we are doing. We want to please Him. It's that loyalty and desire to please Him. That's what He's looking for. And finally, do we want to be with God, or are we just trying to see how much we can get by with? Those are motivations not to take unintentional sins casually. Should have an awareness. Should grow. And that's what he asks us to do. Grow. But it's incredibly important that we see that. Now, think about this final point. When were Israel's failures highlighted so that their salvation was in doubt? When was it during Israel's lifespan that they, that God highlighted what they were doing and said, I'm out? Oh, it was one of those sins that Paul talked about in Romans 7. What I would to do, I did not do, and what I didn't want to do, I did. It was one of those, right? No, it was not. It was when they were defiant. It is when they decided to go their own way. It is when they built their own idols. It is when they openly took whatever God commanded and just went doing what I want. That's when. That's when it was. So very important to understand that difference. I hope that helps some. And we can look later at 
the promises that God made and how we're to rely on those based on here's how he forgave us and what his desire is. If you're not a Christian, please think about your situation. You can have forgiveness. Forgiveness of your past sin and forgiveness as you live in the presence of God from this point on. The Apostle Peter in the very beginning of the book of Acts preached a sermon with people who had murdered Jesus and he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and your children and all who are far off. If you're in need of that, if you understand what it, what it takes to serve God, please make that decision this morning while together we stand and while we sing.